I will call this meeting to order for the City of Iowa City Work Session, May 2nd, 2023. Welcome to everyone in the room and uh, virtually that is watching. Our first item is lead private water service line replacement presentation. And I will turn it over to staff, our city manager. And I'm going to quickly turn it over to Jonathan Durst, the superintendent of our water division and public works. And he's going to uh, walk you through the story of uh, water distribution lines and, and in particular, uh, lead service lines. Great. I was going to say, I don't know how to manage the lights in here. <laughs> All right, well, today's uh, conversation is going to be about lead service lines. I'm sure you've all heard the vernacular lead service lines before. Uh, so the takeaway here today is that federal law is changing. <clears throat> it will go into effect in 2024, October of 2024. And uh, with that law, there will be a focus on the replacement of lead service lines in uh, municipal drinking water systems. Um, Service lines are like driveways. Driveways connect uh, our residents to the public roads. Service lines, uh, like driveways, are owned by the property owner and connect them to our public water main. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns with service lines because of that ownership uh, divide. Uh, but since the 90s, we've been controlling the chemistry on our system per the federal guidance passed in 1991. And this first slide here is just uh, to kind of show you what lead service lines actually look like. So uh, this line over here uh, on the far left, you can see inside of it, it has some white uh, powder on the inner diameter. That's actually by design. We control the chemistry in the water treatment facility in order to be slightly scaling. That means it deposits some calcium carbonate on the inside <coughs> diameter. <coughs> prevent the water from interacting with the materials itself. Uh, the one in the middle is likely what the lead service lines looked like in Flint, Michigan. Uh, when they changed their source water, they changed their chemistry, which made the water corrosive, and it began to eat their pipes and release heavy metals into the water system. And then the one on the end is actually a new uh, lead service line. So it kind of gives you an idea of what these actually look like. Slide forward. So uh, I may go without saying, but lead damages the nervous system and is a uh, public health concern. So different levels of lead can cause different uh, uh, problems. But it's important to also realize that there are sources of lead all over the place. So there's lead in paints, soils, water, outdoor air, consumer products, cosmetics. Uh, food uh, and hobbies and work. You know, people still today work with stained glass windows and use lead to, to do a lot of their hobby trades. So there is lead in the world and it's, you know, in a lot of different products. So the government and public health officials have known about lead for a long time. The uh, chart on the left here kind of shows, and it doesn't show up so well here, but the uh, amount of lead uh, in blood levels in the United States and the different legislation passed throughout the years. Uh, what may not be too visible is a couple of uh, very pertinent uh, areas related to water, and that's a lead ban uh, on plumbing fixtures in 1986, which actually took uh, effect here in Iowa in 1988, and then also the lead and copper rule in 1991. 
which is when we instituted the controls uh, for corrosion in our system to make sure that we aren't releasing lead. Um, there's a lot of other um, legislation in there for bans of lead and paint, bans in lead and gasoline, et cetera, et cetera. On the right is sort of a uh, high-level timeline of the events of Flint. So in April of 2014, they uh, switched their source water from the Flint River, uh, actually to the Flint River, and then they ignored a lot of information they were getting from their residents, you know, discolored water, bad tasting water, concerns with individuals' health, uh, until ultimately they switched back to the Detroit River, and by that time a lot of the damage had already been done to their system and ended in a presidential uh, declaration of a disaster. Um, from then, uh, we've slowly had legislation coming from the federal level. The first one was known as the WIN Act, and that's changed how we publicly notify uh, any of our customers should we have a lead uh, hit on their uh, system. Um, so we already do that. In 2019 of December, we had the lead and copper rule revisions proposed. Those were finalized in 2020, but then the new administration took uh, control of the situation. They put an administrative hold. They wanted to review those. Um, and so the <coughs> enacting of that uh, rule has been somewhat postponed uh, by that. And the Biden administration has also announced that they will be doing a lead and copper rule improvement. So, the vernacular here is LCRR for lead and copper rule revisions, which were done during the Trump administration, and the LCRI, which is currently uh, being done with the Biden administration. In between there, they had the bipartisan infrastructure law, which did apportion some funds for lead service line replacements in communities. All of that to say is that there's a big change coming, and the first uh, kind of mark there is October 16th of 2024. We have to uh, provide to our state regulators a complete inventory of service lines in the city of Iowa City uh, in order to uh, better understand how many lead service lines we actually have. And then 30 days from that date, we also have to notify all of those customers with either suspected or known lead service lines uh, that they have a suspected or known lead service line. And that has to go to both the tenants and the property owners. So to kind of get a feel for how uh, big this change is, here's a portion of the table provided to us uh, about how it currently looks versus how it's going to look. And this is actually a six-page document. Uh, the takeaway from it is, is essentially it's creating a, an environment where your lead sample results are going to be higher. Most communities are likely going to exceed the trigger level that is being, being instituted or the action level that currently exists. And when you exceed either of those marks, there's uh, requirements for lead service line replacements. So. Uh, all that's to say is we will likely have to have a uh, program in place in order to facilitate homeowners replacing their lead service lines. So how have we done so far over the years? So since 1991, we've been sampling. Uh, after the first few uh, sample sessions of about 60 homes, uh, we qualified for reduced sampling due to the low level of our results. 
Um, the way this works for lead sampling is you can't just sample the public water main. You actually have to go into people's homes. Uh, you have to have them stagnate their water for a period of time, and you have to draw the first liter of water from a faucet or other um, point where they can actually use the water for a drinking purpose. So arranging these samples is somewhat difficult. You know, people don't want you in their home at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. whenever they wake up so they can get on with their shower. So a lot of times we have to uh, train homeowners on how to perform these samples, make sure that they're correct and accurate. The other thing we have to be certain of is uh, what we call tertiary point of use systems aren't in place. So that's anybody <coughs> who has like a water softener or RO unit or whatnot. That can drastically change the chemistry of the water that we're putting towards their home. So we don't want to sample downstream from those because they can make their water more corrosive and eat the pipes in their home as well. So we try to get representative samples of the water that we're producing at a point in a person's home where they're using that water for drinking. So over the years, you can see uh, this chart here. Uh, each of these triennial sample periods, the samples are kind of stacked above them. And the uh, sample that has the black X on it is the one that's considered our 90th percent sample. So the 90th percent sample essentially means we're sampling 30 uh, points. So 90% uh, in this case, or our 90th uh, percent sample would be the fourth highest sample. And that's what that X represents is the fourth highest sample. You can see I had to put some outliers on here. You know, there's a 67 parts per billion. There's 140 parts per billion. Every time we get a sample that's uh, quite excessive, we do investigations inside the homes. And uh, we've seen everything. Uh, well, I haven't seen everything, but some of the staff who've been here for 30 some years have seen everything. But uh, a number of these samples uh, and the lead that's caused uh, or in them isn't actually from a lead service line. A lot of times what we see is there's been some sort of home improvement. Maybe some valves got cut, some pipes got disturbed. In one case, there was a uh, pipe that was contacting an HVAC duct, which was causing an electrical connection between the two and corrosion in the pipe. So if we slipped a piece of paper behind it and cleaned the aerator out, we essentially had no lead in their system. So it is very um, case by case. There is no magic bullet for this. Uh, all homes could have a potential to have some sort of errant material in them. We've even seen a uh, rather well-to-do customer uh, change out the faucet in their kitchen with a nice big brass faucet, and we got a very high lead sample from that and had to recommend to them, you might want to get rid of this faucet because it seems as though that the materials are not low lead. So um, it kind of affects everybody across the board uh, as we go forward. So uh, on here, the other thing to note is that the dash line shows the existing action level. Uh, exceeding that would uh, trigger, uh, with the lead and copper rule revisions, a 3% uh, replacement rate for lead service lines in the system. The one that they're adding with the lead and copper rule revisions is the 10 part per billion trigger level. If you exceed that, then you have to negotiate with the state your replacement rate. Uh, with all the other changes with the lead and copper rule revision, and you can already see, you know, we're batting about 50% here between the uh, 10 and 15 uh, parts per billion line. It's more than likely that we will have to have a le uh, lead service line replacement program available to our customers. 
So uh, this kind of goes over a few of the things I just said. Um, one of the key takeaways here is there's such a thing as an unknown lead service line or a lead service unknown. And those lead service unknowns count towards our total as lead service lines. Whether it's known or unknown, they consider it to be lead. And if your replacement rate is 3% and maybe only one in 10 of the unknowns is actually lead, uh, an unknown does not count as a replacement if it turns out to not be lead. So that can cause you to have to dig, you know, 10 times as many service lines just to find enough service lines to actually replace because some of them may not actually be lead. We don't have a lot to go off of uh, when it comes to what the materials are underground and the best way to find out is to dig them up and look. So uh, a little bit more about service lines in our system and the sources of lead and drinking water. So uh, what we have over on the right side is a graphic that was developed for us, I don't know how many years ago, but somebody actually hand drew that and we've had it ever since and it's been very uh, nice and other communities have asked us for it over the years so we've always uh, helped them out by giving it to them. But anyways, uh, on that graphic, all of the blue <coughs> is the property owner's responsibility. So you can see from the main all the way into the home minus the meter is considered private infrastructure. Again, just like a driveway, right? Your driveway apron goes over the sidewalk right up to the home. Again, if that driveway gets damaged, you know, the expectation is that the homeowner is repairing it. Same thing here with these service lines. When service lines show up broken, we end up going out to the homeowner and telling them they have a broken service line and it needs to be replaced. We ask them to replace it within 72 hours. Uh, service lines that are broken uh, provide a point in the system where bacteria or other debris could enter the potable water system. So for us, it's very important that these get fixed uh, just in case something happens in the system to call, cause back siphonage. So any sort of pressure upset and whatnot could actually cause water to be sucked into the system and then shot down the main and then enter other people's homes. So we're very, uh, you know, on point when it comes to getting service lines replaced. Uh, and it's very difficult for homeowners because a lot of times they don't understand that they own the service line and what it takes to replace a service line. Some homes have service lines that are quite long or maybe the water mains on the other side of the road and it runs under, you know, the boulevard of Iowa Avenue and it's going to cost a lot of money to repair. So every water main or every service line is actually quite case by case. A little bit about service lines, just to kind of get a feel here. So uh, the vernacular, so to speak, the language. We say box a lot, but it's really not a box. It's more of a tube, but bear with me. Uh, so on the uh, water main itself, we have what we call a tapping saddle. That's a, a device that actually clamps around the water main and has a threaded port. And what we do is we screw what's known as a corporation stop into that. And that's actually just a small quarter turn valve. And what we do is we screw in our tapping machine and we tap through that corp into the water main and then we let the water main blow the water back out with all the swarf from cutting into the main and then we shut the corp off. From there, the contractor will hook on the service line and uh, run it to what's known as the curb stop, which also has a stop box. Again, this is another quarter turn valve and the stop box is actually just a tube that allows us to reach down to that valve and turn it on or off. From there, the service line runs into the home and connects to the water meter. 
So again, these uh, lengths, materials, all that can be very different. Some of the homes here in Iowa City, you know, built in 1900, uh, you know, the water uh, system here started in 1882. Uh, so there can be quite the Frankenstein of materials underneath the ground. It may have broken a few times in the years. Maybe somebody came in and spliced in two feet of copper, <coughs> put some galvanized iron on this side. It can be quite uh, the spaghetti mess down there when it comes to what materials are being used. So that's why it's, it's hard for us to determine what materials are actually being used because a lead service line is essentially any service line containing lead. If it's got two feet of lead in it, it's a lead service line. So um, it's, it's important to, to, to be as accurate as we can. Um, with that, and back to the uh, topic that uh, lead service lines are not the only source of lead, the EPA has this uh, graphic here that kind of points out that galvanized pipe exposed to lead can actually complex with lead and harbor it, so any disruption of a galvanized pipe that was exposed to lead can cause a lead release. That's also in the lead and copper rule revision. If any galvanized iron line in the service line was exposed to lead at any time in its history, it's also to be considered a lead service line. Uh, so galvanized iron pipes can also exist inside the home. There's also copper pipes with lead solder, like we discussed earlier. Uh, the lead ban here in Iowa didn't go into effect until 1988. So homes built between about 1950 and 1988 have a very high chance of having uh, leaded solder in their system. In fact, we just had uh, in the last month, a customer whose home was built in 1987 uh, tapped on a main that was installed in 1984. They replaced one valve in their home, and they ended up having a 31 part per billion uh, lead sample, which is double, you know, about double the 15 part per billion action level. We went back to investigate. We pulled apart their kitchen faucet. Sure enough, we found chunks of metal stuck on the aerator screen. We dumped that out. We took another sample. We're still waiting for those results, but likely as not, that was what was causing the high lead. So in no case did they have a lead service line. They just had stuff come off the inside of the pipes in their home, get into their aerator. So uh, it's, it's important to know that because even if we can get all the lead service lines out, there's still a lot of public education that needs to occur with uh, homeowners about how to maintain your plumbing, things to look for, how to flush your system out and clean your faucets. Um, so our public water distribution system has about 280 miles of water main. Uh, a group of seven individuals very dedicated to the uh, repair of our water mains uh, do that all year round. I'm sure you've all seen the water main break notices and whatnot, and they do a fantastic job. So can't say enough good things about the dedication they have for that work. But uh, conversely, there's about 500 miles, roughly 500 miles of privately owned service lines in Iowa City. Uh, some facilities, like our large industrial facilities, have giant fire service systems that wrap around the whole building, have multiple hydrants, et cetera. So, you know, there, there's quite a lot of private infrastructure connected to our public infrastructure. In fact, almost double. Uh, annually, we have about 20 to 24 service line breaks. Uh, and again, most homeowners uh, aren't aware of their service line. They don't know what, where it is, why they're being told they have to fix something, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be very much a hardship for them. Um, 
when their service line breaks. And we try as much as we can to help them through the process of contacting contractors, making sure they're getting a fair price, making sure that the work that's being performed is uh, appropriate. Uh, but right now, you know, if a service line breaks and it's lead, we don't have any teeth to tell them it has to be replaced. So in fact, just today I was informed of another property who had a lead service line repaired rather than replaced. And one of the things that the lead and copper rule revision uh, is definitely uh, no bones about is that a disturbed <coughs> lead line is the worst kind of lead line. Because when it's not disturbed, a lot of times that nice layer on the inside helps protect that line from anything. But when it does become disturbed, that's when you get the release of particles that can get caught in the aerator and whatnot. So a damaged uh, lead service line is basically almost a guarantee that somebody's going to be exposed to very high levels of lead. So when a, a homeowner opts to not replace their lead service line and rather just get a repair, we try to coach them on how to clean their aerators and flush their system and you know minimize as much as possible any exposure to lead in their drinking water. But ultimately, it's their infrastructure, their choice, their pocketbook, their uh, assumed risk. Uh, and that's the way it works. So uh, right now we are working on that lead service line inventory. On the left is kind of a, a snapshot. What you see there are the ones that we've already designated as lead service unknown, or the dark reds, which we know have lead service lines. Um, this will have to be publicly available on uh, the city's website come October 16th. We will probably put it on there such that somebody could just zoom in and click on their parcel and know what tier level it's in and what that means. Um, right now we started at about 10,000 lead service unknowns and as we've collected metadata on each of the parcels, build year, tap card records, et cetera, et cetera, we've whittled that down to about 3,000 lead service unknowns and about 100 confirmed uh, lead service unknowns or lead service lines. Uh, we have some more data to get through. We're hoping to get that lead service unknown down to about 2,500. But an important thing to kind of note about this map and what we've seen in the field is that uh, pretty much homes built before 1950 have a very much, it's a relatively higher likelihood of having a lead service line than homes built after 1950. After 1950 to 1988, we see a lot more of the copper lead solder type uh, plumbing and service lines. Um, so with that, you can see the area uh, on the right shows 1950s water main, and those uh, dashed lines are actually 1950s water main that we've abandoned and replaced. Uh, but there's kind of an easy box here to think about in terms of where lead service lines are most likely, and that <coughs> box is bordered by Sunset, uh, Whiting, First Avenue, and Highway 6. That box kind of comprises uh, the 1950s footprint of Iowa City and uh, coincides with where our uh, 1950 vintage water main is. So back to the federal bipartisan infrastructure law, it did have money uh, that could be allocated to states to be distributed through the state revolving fund for service line replacements. 49% uh, of that's supposed to be forgivable to disadvantaged community, and disadvantaged communities are tied to census tract information uh, where you have to score uh, above a certain level in order to be considered a disadvantaged community. Uh, there's a more granular uh, 
widget that they're working on, but as of now, that's not available to us. But uh, Iowa City currently scores 12 on the existing, which is under the 15 needed to be considered a disadvantaged community. So it makes it unlikely that these loans through the state revolving fund would be eligible for forgiveness uh, to the city of Iowa City. So problem statement, as we've discussed, things are changing. As of October of 2024, the copper rule revisions or improvements are going to be taking effect. Uh, it's going to have us uh, address privately owned service lines and have those replaced uh, at significant cost, uh, regardless of ownership. Um, some communities, such as like Madison, Wisconsin, have already started down the path of trying to get lead service lines out of the system, going so far as to shut people off if they're unwilling to have their service lines replaced in order to force that to occur because of the amount of costs that it would uh, cause the system to have to do uh, other treatment methods in order to keep one or two service lines from corroding. So presenting today a few options. You know, the first option here is apply for these SRF loans, try to conduct large infrastructure uh, projects impacting many historical areas and streets. Uh, the SRF uh, funding would not cover pavement repairs or internal plumbing work, and each property owner in that area would have to agree to this work. Uh, again, we can't just go onto people's property and tear it up without you know, temporary construction easements or other sorts of permissions from them. Second one here is what I like to call the three-legged stool because a three-legged stool needs all legs in order to function. So that's to promote what's uh, a National League of Cities uh, service line insurance uh, program that's administered through HomeServe, update our municipal code to ban the repair of lead service lines and require full uh, service line replacements, and create a cost share program for the verification of and or replacement of lead service lines. And then the last one is to essentially generate uh, uh, enough funding through rate increases in order to do a uh, intensive and extensive multi-year CIP process. So essentially paying for option one ourselves instead of trying to get SRF loans. It's also important to know that SRF loans have a lot of uh, bureaucratic necessities associated with them incurring like <coughs> environmental reviews and other sorts of needs. So our recommended option is option number two, the three-legged stool. And so with this is the National League of Cities Home Serve Service Line Insurance Program and Public Education Component. I'll get into each one of these in a little bit more detail here shortly. Uh, the code change to prevent lead service line uh, repairs and make sure that they're being replaced and developing a cost share program to provide the resources to homeowners who want to be proactive and either verify and or replace their lead service lines without waiting for them to break or otherwise become manifest in their lives. So uh, the first part of that is the National League of Cities service line program. So this is a, essentially an insurance. Um, the way it works is that we as the city would pass a resolution to uh, enter a marketing agreement with them. So it doesn't cost the city anything to have this happen except our letterhead. The way that works is 
we uh, help craft these messages uh, that will be mailed to our customers to say this service line insurance program is available. Here's the cost. You may want to consult your current homeowner's insurance to see if it's available to them at a competitive rate. Um, and this is why it's important. You have a sanitary sewer service. You have a water sewer service or water uh, service. These can become damaged. These are owned by you. And if they do become damaged and need to be repaired, the cost can be significant. So at a uh, premium of about, I believe the last time I checked with them, it's seven to $8 a month. You could potentially have uh, your service lines uh, covered uh, in case of any sort of damage and need of repair. So again, it's a marketing approach. There's no cost to the city other than helping out with what those mailers look like and making sure they're appropriate and the message is what we want our customers to hear. We can back out at any time. Uh, we can also opt into getting a royalty payment from them for the use of our letterhead. Uh, that money could be, uh, I believe, up to about $10,000, which could be funneled into the cost share program to help people replace or verify if they have a lead service line. Uh, here's kind of some details about what the uh, sewer or water service line coverage provides. So each one would be its own uh, premium, you know, seven to eight bucks. If a qualifying event occurs, they would get $8,500 without a deductible to affect the repair to their service line. We see uh, a range for service line uh, replacements. Now, the, most of the time we see it around eight to $10,000 uh, for service line replacements, but the, the total range we've seen is between about 5,000 to 30,000. Uh, the 30,000 is the very high end and that involves a lot of pavement repair. Anyways, uh, one of the biggest benefits to this is the 24 seven 365 hotline. So when we inform customers that they have a service line that needs to be repaired, it's very much kind of feeling as though they've been caught flat-footed. And we give them a list of contractors they can call, but then they're stuck, you know, trying to call three or four different people if they want to be, you know, diligent to get quotes and then figuring out when they can get out on site, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this program vets these contractors, provides a single number to call, and the prices are already negotiated. So it really helps out the homeowners, and it would really help us out as well to have that hotline available uh, because uh, it just takes so much stress away from the homeowners and also from us in order to find the correct service provider to get the work done that needs to be done in a timely manner. Uh, I would say, by and large, that is the hardest part for homeowners, is just feeling, feeling comfortable getting the quote and getting the service done uh, at the cost uh, that a lot of these can, can cost at. You know, I mean, you just don't want to throw money away and hope that the person is doing it correctly. Uh, they also offer internal plumbing insurance. Uh, so this is another separate one. The premiums for this are higher. They're about $10 a month, and the coverage is $3,000 per incident. So these are the three programs that we could uh, advertise to our customers along with a uh, public education component about what service lines are, the health effects of lead, whether or not they have lead service lines. We can package all of that together and provide it to our customers. This program is uh, endorsed by the National League of Cities as well as the <coughs> Iowa League of Cities and many communities in Iowa are already uh, participants within it. 
So some of the surrounding communities here, West Branch, uh, West Liberty, Tipton, uh, use it. Des Moines Waterworks, which provides you know water to the entire municipal area there, uh, participates in this program. So it's been around, it's been useful, there's good reviews from the other communities, uh, and it would very much help our customers as we approach the sled and copper rule revision. Code changes are a bit straightforward. Add some definitions about what a lead service line is. Make sure we define what a full lead service line replacement is. Tie that to the state and federal code so we don't have to change it often when things change at that level. We just make sure it stays there. Uh, the next part there essentially uh, says if a, a lead service line becomes damaged, it can't be repaired. It has to be replaced. Um, and kind of go through all the uh, little bits on that. And then the last part there talks about when we do public improvements <coughs> that we would replace the portion of the service line in the right of way to the stop box and inform the customer if we find anything, whether galvanized exposed to lead or lead downstream from the stop box and give them the opportunity to replace the rest of the line into the home. We've already doing that. We've done it with Olive Court and uh, University Heights. We have provisions in the Court Street uh, reconstruction. We have provisions in the Fairfield uh, reconstruction that's about to kick off here uh, soon. So uh, this is something we're already doing, but it's just putting it into code that this is what we will do when we're doing public improvements on the water main is we will replace the section of uh, service line in the right of way. Um, and then the last bit here is kind of the conceptual understanding of what this cost share program would look like. The actual details are, you know, yet to be determined, but uh, there would be two components, a verification dig and then the actual replacement. So again, we wouldn't know for sure on lead service unknowns if it's actually a leaded service line until we dig it up. So a verification dig would be an opportunity to dig the uh, service line at the stop box and two feet to either side so we can make sure that it wasn't just a new stop box spliced in with a couple of feet of copper. We want to see to either side. So we would have one of our customer service staff observe that verification dig, figure out what the materials are on the other side of that, and then if it turns out to be lead, then this customer would also qualify for the uh, reimbursement on the lead service line replacement side of things. So a verification dig, we would say 50% up to 3,000. For the service line replacement, we would say 50% uh, up to 5,000. We would move away from you know having to replace any fences or plantings and things like that. That would be on the homeowner uh, to, to repair that if they were disturbed during the uh, service line replacement. We would keep ourselves to uh, helping <coughs> for the service line costs and you know pavement or other uh, built surface uh, restoration processes. But again, that's the conceptual understanding of it at this point is to again provide resources. So the reason this is the three-legged stool, banning the repair of uh, service lines could put hardship on some folks who don't have the money to replace their service lines. So having that service line insurance program there would give them the opportunity at a low premium cost to then have access to those resources should they have to replace that service line. We also have the resources available to our homeowners through this cost share program if they want to be proactive. We're going to be notifying these homeowners annually 
that they have either a, a potential lead service line or a known lead service line, and that's going to get people, you know, worried, and they're going to want to take some action. So this gives them an opportunity, with our help, to take that action at a reduced cost to find out what truly is underground and give them the peace of mind going forward. So those three components give our customers the resources they need to make good decisions with regards to their private service line. So next steps, uh, you know, we would look to make an ordinance change to ban lead. We would have an effective date on that to hopefully coincide with the uh, availability of the National Service, uh, National League of Cities uh, Service Line Insurance Program, and then adopt that resolution to begin that process and that public education to people. Here's what's coming. You know, lead service lines are not going to be allowed to be repaired anymore. We'll have these opportunities available for you through a cost share program and in this insurance program as we proceed. Uh, in October of 2024, we'll have the results, but uh, before that event, if you have concerns, contact the Water Division. We already do uh, free lead sampling for our homeowners if they have a concern. We'll work with them, we'll train them on how to do that. We'll drop a bottle off in the morning or in the evening and then pick it up the next day from them and run it out to the state hygienics lab and get the results. If it's high, we give them results right away. We work with them to flush their system and again investigate to find out why that may have been high. So all of that would uh, wrap together and move us forward. Questions? 36 minutes. It's a lot to go through. <laughs> Thank you. A um, couple of quick questions. Uh, just to make sure, uh, the uh, insurance program listed on the slide, if they're damaged, that includes not necessarily damaged, but need of repair or replacement? Right. Did I miss that? Just, just to make sure that it was. A qualifying event uh, would be if the. Detection of. Right, there's some sort of damage to the service line and need of repair. Okay, and let's see. I think I had another question on here you may have answered. Um, and then uh, concerned residents, they can request testing as well. I know you have to do the, you recruit testing every three <coughs> years, but in the meantime, like as we start this education campaign, um, if a resident says, hey, you know, I've got an older house, can you come test my house? Is that something that the city does? Or yes. Does it, does it come at a large fee, small fee, no fee? No fee, yep. My sister was concerned. She contacted me, and we worked that out for her too. <laughs> and are there anything? So, so when it's owner occupied, that's that's fairly clear cut. Yeah. What about for uh, rental properties? So, um, detection of some of these lines in some of our older buildings that also are rental properties here in the city. How, how do we interact with that? Because we could potentially have not five people um, exposed. It could be 200, you know, something, or or 20, or whatever. Yeah, so one thing about lead service lines is they're not our large diameter service lines. So uh, large, uh, you know, multi-story, multi-residential properties typically have service lines that are larger than two inches, and we already know that those won't be lead. Hmm. Uh, but some of the uh, rental properties, as you say, that have, you know, multiple pro uh, tenants within them, we always try to interact with the property owner as well as the tenants to inform them of what's going on. And the lead and copper rule revision mandates that we have to speak not only to the property owner but to the tenants. Ultimately, what work does or doesn't get done is uh, up to the property owner. And then, so some of like the older homes that have been converted into you know multiple residential. Those to me, that was would be the uh, ones most likely to have lead service lines. Correct. Yes, there are um, a lot of homes that have been converted that are 
have a higher likelihood of having a lead service line. And last question, I promise. Um, just to be 100% clear, are there any lead in the, you, you said water mains a few times. I don't think you meant that those were, uh, are, are there any, any lead in any of the water mains, uh, the, the city-owned part of this system? Right. So uh, as far as uh, explicit lead in contact with water, no. But uh, to point out, our system is uh, and does still operate water main that was installed in 1882, which uh, I looked that up. So that was uh, about the same time the Statue of Liberty was being uh, constructed. and. Uh, before the Eiffel Tower was constructed. And in fact, the same year that the first uh, home in the United States got uh, domestic electricity to it. <laughs> so with that said, uh, the way they installed cast iron water main back in the day was uh, what's known as a let it bell. So the bell and spigot joints and water main kind of go together like a hip joint. And so after they pushed the spigot into the bell, they would melt a billet of lead into that joint. That joint doesn't contact the water, but it could contact the water over time. That being said, we know we don't have any lead or detectable lead in our <coughs> public water mains. So there are leaded materials, but there is no lead in our drinking water. Thank you. Just one follow-up to the question that you mentioned about the $8,500. So let's say that someone, the cost to replace the, the pipes, is five thousand, but the yard is another two thousand. Would that yard part be covered through this? Through the insurance program, <laughs> that would be a question I would have to ask them. I don't know uh, off the top of my head. And that would be the same question for the ten dollar additional for um, if someone just wanted to cover the the water pipes in their home. Um, is it only for you know? stopping replacing the, the the bursted pipe or is it also the drywall that got wet and right the insulation so yeah those are things that we would have to clarify with the uh, insurance provider and ins make sure that those details are included in any of that public education and outreach when we provide it to them You'd mentioned that we would want to, if, if we we're going to go forward with the three-legged stool, that the kind of the educational component would come before, the code change would come before, but to make it effective when that rule goes into place in October 2024. Do you have a sense of the time frame or what you would recommend as far as when to get that underway since we're, I don't know, 18 months out about? Uh, my personal opinion would be immediately, <laughs> okay. but in terms of when... Uh, when we can or when that's feasible, uh, I'm not sure. But the sooner the better. The sooner we have this in place, the sooner we've begun this process of educating our homeowners so that come October 16th, 2024, when we mass mail all of these uh, notifications to people, they already know what resources are available. They feel like they can have control of this situation, <laughs> and it's not something we've just blindsided them with. Thank you. So following up on the question about the education piece, it's like there's so many layers to this, and 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 I feel you've done a great job of, of saying that there will be um, information about sort of what may be upcoming and why, i.e., you actually own this stuff, right? right? Will there also be sort of that 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 foundational core, which is that the laws are changing, and therefore like the, the LCRR, right? I mean, that's the impetus for why this is all becoming law, right? 
Am I understanding right. that yes, correctly? Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to, to, so it's a piece that I think could be really helpful for whomever's going to be affected is or impacted is is to say, I mean, this isn't like, we just decided you need to have new pipes. It's like, this is a new law that's gone into place. So, and that may already be part of the messaging, but um, I think for some folks that would be an important piece. Otherwise they would feel that it's just a saying, I mean, it's a good thing, but they might be like, oh, I don't, can't afford it. And you know, what have you. So just to say, this is something that is, this is a federal law that's going into effect. Could I be, agree with you. Yeah. It would be important to make sure that the, the story here is understood that this isn't a, uh, a knee jerk or some sort of whimsical thing. This has been in the works since essentially uh, President Obama declared a disaster for Flint, Michigan. This is the outcome from that, and it's finally coming into the fore. I, I did have one other question. I'm sorry. No problem. Um, has there been any conversations? I'm just thinking about actually getting the message out, and like once I'm sure that there's going to be multiple iterations of kind of trying to get the education piece out, but in terms of letting people know, like, and here's the program, and here's, you know, the resources, um, have you perhaps been in conversation with Johnson County that that could go in with when property taxes are being sent out? Because that might be a way that people could actually get it right in hand and go, oh. Correct, yeah. We so. could we would probably make use of our utility bill inserts. Oh. We find those to be very effective uh, ways to communicate to our water customers. Thanks. Yep. Just, uh, I know you had the list of all the other cities in Iowa, but um, specifically those that are in Johnson County, are there are there others? I'm just wondering if this is something that we've talked with our neighbors about as far as them implementing. I'm kind of looking at Jeff. To, to uh, no, I haven't. Um, I don't know if they've considered it or not, but it's something we could certainly do is, is coordinate with them. Well, there's value to that, but. Yeah, there may be, uh, you know, each community is different and uh, how they source their water, treat their water, and when they began as a community and where that kind of nucleus area of 1950s prior homes are located. So, you know, some of our, uh, th this law is, hits everything so even small homeowners associations that qualify as water systems have to do a lead service inventory so a lot of the engineers we interact with you know they're also their uh, water operator for their small system and they'll tell me oh i got my lead service inventory complete i'm like yeah all 25 homes great job man <laughs> but uh it, so yeah different different areas are going to have a different amount of uh impact from this this coming law so uh, we can definitely have those conversations with the surrounding areas uh, to see if they would also like to perform a program like this. Uh, when I was talking to the DNR about uh, what we intended to propose, they were very interested uh, to see how this works for us because, uh, like I said, those SRF loans are tied to kind of like that rubric with you have to qualify as a 15, and a lot of communities can't do that. Plus, you know, the revenues aren't there to go ahead and just say we're going to do a $15 million project next year to, to tear up all these old brick streets and start going into homes built in the 1900s. Uh, so uh, having this in place, you know, empowering our homeowners to make these decisions uh, may actually end up being a model 
uh, for other communities in Iowa to use uh, going forward in order to help get their lead service replacements uh, up to the level they need to. And, and doing this doesn't preclude us in the future as we get more information from looking at some of those uh, other options, you know, doing a CIP or trying to get some of the state revolving fund. It's actually on a five-year uh, uh, spent, so every year they'll get more money for this particular thing that we can apply for. But right now I think the best thing for us is to, you know, get these uh, programs in place, get our homeowners feeling in charge and uh, aware of these situations. So just another question maybe for Jeff, um, understanding that their recommendation would be to, you know, start as soon as possible, but what, what might be feasible as far as a time frame if people would be, you know, on the lookout for this? Well, um, <coughs> I, I guess I'd want to have some, some conversations with staff to, to get too specific, but, but we can do inf public inter information about lead in general, lead testing services mm -hmm. available. Um, we've done some of that, particularly in the aftermath of Flint, and anytime there's a news story about lead, you know, we'll get, a, we'll get a, a more calls and emails. So um, I think we can do some of that basic stuff now. Um, we still have some homework to do on the insurance program, on designing the cost share program, those types of things before we get very specific about that. Mm -hmm. But um, advertising that lead service, lead testing is available for your home. Uh, here's who may be at risk based on year of construction or things like that. that that's, that's stuff that we can do right away um, and, and probably that we've done in the past mm -hmm. that can be easily repackaged. Thank you. Do you know if someone um, can get a higher level of funding back? So there's one fee so far is what I'm understanding for the insurance cost, where they can get up to $8,500. Let's say someone knows that they, you know, they have $60,000 worth of, right. um, you know, I destruction. Know one home that that could, probably does. Or, or, or $30,000, right? That's the upper, the upper end. Yeah. Could they get a higher? Um, are there tiers that they can get for a higher level of? Um, funds when when something happens right uh, so I'm not aware of any uh, higher levels of coverage for the National League of Cities program but that I think is why uh, one of the key points in the uh, uh, public education is to say you know look at your uh, system call us maybe we can provide you some more information and it may be best for you to talk to your current homeowners insurance provider to see what they have available for you if you know there's uh, a larger liability than the 8,500 that this program provides. Sure, thank you. All right, any other questions? Thank you so much. So, Mayor, I think our intent in presenting to you today was just awareness, first of all, but also to give you a signal of the path that we're going down with the, with the three-legged stool uh, approach. Uh, if you at any time you want to have a follow-up discussion on any of those things, let us know. But that's that's where we're moving as this deadline is drawing closer and closer. Thank you. All right, we'll move on to item number two, clarification of agenda items. 
Just to give you a heads up, Mayor, I will be uh, recusing myself from item, I don't have it in front of me, I think it's 8A, okay. the um, Oak Knoll area rezoning. All right. to information packets, April 20th. Mayor, maybe I can put it on your radar, uh, the council's radar uh, coming up. In, in the past, the council has um, considered reduced meeting schedules in the summer. Um, really, that's your your call. I'm not I'm not trying to push you in that direction, but it is helpful for staff to have a few months of planning, particularly when we um, are, are thinking about capital project schedules and public hearing schedules. So uh, maybe for the next meeting or or sometime uh, here this spring, you guys can discuss that. Sure. I think our, do we have a somewhat reduced summer schedule already? has one meeting. Okay. Oh, did we already cover that? My apologies. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, we kind of went through the entire year. That's what did I we? thought. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a big schedule. We liked how it went last year. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Sorry yeah. about that. But, but Thank you. I, I think it's still, um, it's, it's good to mention if there's anything that's changed for anyone. Mm. You know, if we need to move that date around, I think we're open to to doing that so check your calendars look at the dates that we have set and um, if there's any conflicts for any counselor let us know moving on to april 28th information packet um ip3 uh, andrew contacted me and asked if i he's not able to come to the work session. Uh, <coughs> he'll, he'll be with us for the formal session, but he asked if I would pass on the uh, issue of the chicken ordinance, the good old chicken ordinance. Um, I guess he's been talking to counselors and I think the city attorney with Eric about this and um, asked if I would request that it be put on a, um, uh, put up, you know, on the work session list as a topic of discussion. Mm -hmm. That'd be agreeable. Yeah. All right. We'll put it on the list. Anything else from April 28th information packet? All right. We're going to welcome up USG, the University of Iowa student government, with their updates. We have a new person, so maybe there'll be an update there. Oh, okay. yeah, there will be. Hi, Council. Uh, so first off, we'll get out of the um, finals week is next week, so students will be ending the semester um, after that that week. Um, most students will be leaving Wednesday and Thursday, um, but anyone who stays in town will be staying. I will be staying. So you'll see me over the summer uh, a little bit in order to get my stipend and in order to just understand the, the Council itself. Um, 
So this is the, also the first week of the new administration under Mitch Winterwin and Carly O'Brien. Uh, they will be coming to a couple of city council meetings too, so I'm sure you'll see some of the administration here like you did uh, last week. And um, we have a new deputy city liaison, which is amazing, uh, Matthew Monsivice, and I'll have him uh, introduce himself here. Welcome. Hello, good afternoon, Councillor. It's very lovely to uh, meet all of you for the first time. My name is Matthew Monsivice. I'm a first year at the University of Iowa studying political science uh, with a minor in rhetoric and persuasion on the pre-law track with a certificate in political risk analysis. My hometown is Ankeny, Iowa, just around the Des Moines area, if you guys are familiar with that. And um, I'm also a tour guide for the university, so that's also a really fun part of what I do. I'm looking forward to meeting all of you individually and working with you. Great. Thank you. Well, welcome, welcome. Of course. And then that's it. So thank you guys so much. And yeah, see you in two weeks. Well, happy finals week. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Item five is council updates on the signed boards, commissions, and committees. Well, I guess we could do that at this point. Um, uh, Councilor Harmson and myself were on the Rules Committee and uh, we met recently. We don't have to meet very often, but uh, we did because uh, one of our charges is uh, bylaws uh, from committees and I think it's 6I is what we saw. You were presented with the results of, of the Planning and Zoning uh, revi Revised Bylaws, uh, which they uh, they pretty much went by just to be consistent, particularly with uh, the um, uh, speakers uh, and to coincide with with our rules for for speaker guidelines uh, and those kinds of things and just to clarify a few few other little points uh, in their bylaws because they had looked at them for a while yeah just a few minor language changes to make sure that our language was correct uh, looking at some of the electronic meetings which of course we've all come to appreciate over the last couple of years and so just kind of does does those updates and so we looked at those and and uh, recommend those changes for the full council one thing that was discussed on that lines was uh, our persons that are attending via Zoom, even if they're council committee members, commission members, are they allowed to vote? And I, I believe it was decided that uh, they they would not be counted uh, as far as the quorum uh, to to be voting. Do you remember that, Eric, or what? what we decided on, but I remember there was a discussion on that as far as Zoom meetings and whether you're actually physically in attendance or on Zoom. Right, I'm, I'm sorry, I guess I'm a little foggy on the discussion. I remember there was some discussion about whether they would be part of the quorum, right. uh, that, and, but certainly they could vote. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, and maybe we're on the same page. A determined that. quorum versus in-person versus, right, right, yeah. yeah, okay. So I'm assuming that the majority would have to be, there would have to be a um, majority present. Physically present. In order to be quorum, yeah, I can I can just read the section five uh, with the uh, the unchanged part. A majority of the members of the commission shall constitute a quorum, um, and then uh, struck out uh, the phrase at any meeting. The new part uh, reads as, as follows: Unless an electronic meeting is allowed pursuant to Iowa Code section twenty one point eight, the quorum must be physically present. Where a quorum is present, electronic participation by those members not physically present may be coordinated on a case-by-case -case basis upon request. So there needs to be a physically present quorum uh, if somebody were to say, you know, I'm, I'm traveling or something like that and the rest yeah. of, the, the, rest of the, that PNZ decides that that's okay for them to participate, then, then they have that door open. So. Awesome. I 
have an update just from this afternoon. The Better Together 2030 uh, Board of Directors convened for the first time. So there was the initial board who voted in the expanded board, <laughs> which um, you all had nominated me to represent us on. So uh, it was about an hour and a half meeting. And um, if I fall asleep, it's because we were at Roy Sam Porter's Soul Food Restaurant and she fed us lunch. Right. So we had like entire, entire spread. Um, and got to eat that during the meeting. Um, but we just talked about kind of the Better Together 2030 vision, how that came to be, how it aligns with um, you know, the goals sort of identified through the processes that, that resulted in that. And um, of course, we know that it aligns very well with our strategic plan or keeping an eye on that. So it just was a great, um, Great first meeting, and I think we'll have substantive updates, I'm sure, quickly. We did learn a little bit more about the uh, 3D printed house project that um, that we are supporting, um, and just yeah, it's very exciting. Things are things are happening. Now I have to ask: Do they have an update on when the start of that would be? A, a the, timeline. The printing 3D? itself, I think, would be this fall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Depending, apparently, they're going to Muscatine soon, yet this month, and apparently bringing in some materials from Australia. <laughs> so assuming, bless you, assuming that that occurs on time, then they will. I think we're next after Muscatine. So, changes all the time, I understand. Any other updates? Hearing none, we will adjourn this meeting and be back at 6 p.m. for our formal meeting.